0: Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast
1: today?
2: Welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. In each episode, I go into a lot of detail about an individual bird species and try to keep it pretty laid-back attitude. Usually, I record outside. Um, Today, I'm recording at Fox Forest Wildlife Management Area by a a man-made pond. It's uh, sunny, the first sunny day Elkins has had in like, I don't know, three weeks, so the birds are singing, there's a lot of activity going on. There's a hound dog that is enjoying the sunny day, too, so I apologize for that, but hopefully we get some... Oh, sounds like some cardinals are duetting back and forth. And there's a blue jay. But yeah, I think it'll be a good recording day out here uh, with some good background noises and a few dog calls and airplanes probably, too. Um, today's episode is going to be on the turkey vulture and the black vulture, and I think it's going to be a long one, so buckle up, folks. Um, first off, though, I have to say thanks to people for listening to the show, um, for writing in to tell me uh, what they think about my episodes. Um, here's a voice memo my buddy John sent me about the Carolina Wren episode. Hello, Dirty Bird.
3: Hello, John. This is John Shangber calling to offer some appreciation for your most recent episode, the episode on Carolina Wrens. Um, I was actually out on a walk, a little hike, uh, through the Dogwood Dell area of Richmond, a little kind of deciduous woods patch in between a big field and a river area. Uh, And I was with Lanier, and we came upon a Carolina Wren about four feet in front of us, you know kind of dancing along bopping along the lower section of the tree that was covered in hairy vines huge hairy vines that really kind of obscured the entirety of the bark um, it looked like a great place for for food and insects to be found and indeed it seemed like the um, wren was having a pretty good time um, finding stuff there it just was poking its head in coming out with a lot of a lot of goodies um, it was amazing how close we were able to get to the wren we were within three or four feet of it the entire time uh, eventually we needed to keep going so we walked past it and flew to the tree you know right down the trail and then we got to that one and flew again to the next one and did this for a while so we were able to walk with the wren for quite some quite some way um, it was a snowy kind of icy day uh, Richmond's been covered in some layer of ice for maybe two or three days now and I uh, came back after the hike and listened to your episode and I heard the p- the part about uh, you know the Carolina wrens not being most necessarily the most winter hardy species so I'm hoping that they're able to survive this um, kind of cold snap that we've had uh, an ice storm that's taken down a lot of trees <clears throat> so um, here's to hoping that the wrens keep on kicking it and making our hikes through the Richmond woods uh ever more pleasant all right well keep up the good work dirty bird appreciate it awesome john thank you so much for
2: that voice memo i'm glad i could help lend some insight on uh the behaviors of the carolina wrens hopping around your neck of the woods there and i gotta mention also that there is some dirty bird merch available there's some t-shirts um check out any of my social media pages i've posted about the t-shirts um all proceeds are going to uh, a good cause a donation cause i'm not making money off of this and um i also have made some dirty bird stickers and kind of been passing them out um but um if people are interested in more stickers um we can set up uh buying another batch of them and um getting them uh, sent out to people so yeah let me know if you want any merch But to get to today's topic, um, I'll be talking today about the black vulture and the turkey vulture. Um, These are pretty prominent birds um, that you see, um, especially in the southern U.S. and um, the turkey vulture um, throughout most of the U.S. Um, You see them soaring high up in the sky. They're very visible. I'll be featuring another story uh, from another Dirty Bird listener today, uh, the dad of Hannah. Um, Hannah was in our Forking with Spoonbills episode. So thank you, Kevin, for your voice memo with your story. Kevin also uh, left me a voice memo with some questions about vultures, and I'll be answering those uh, throughout the episode. The wind is kind of picking up. Uh, I think I'm going to have to move from the nice little bench that I'm sitting on, kind of out in the open by the pond right now, and kind of move into some thickets that will kind of break the wind so that I can record. So I'll be right back, folks. All right, I'm back recording again. Um, As I walked away from my spot by the pond and headed to this uh, spruce grove that I'm hoping will block the wind, uh, I did notice some turkey vultures kind of sailing overhead, possibly eye in the pond, hoping maybe they see, I don't know, a fish floating in there or something. <laughs> but I wanted to start off today's story with a Native American cultural story from the Winnebago people. Their ancestral lands lie in central Wisconsin and northern Illinois. This story follows Trickster. He's a character who takes on many different forms in Native American mythology. Um, and kind of throughout the world actually uh, like a lot of different cultures have this like trickster character that uh, Features in stories, but anyway this story by the Winnebago people features vulture prominently Trickster was tired he had been wandering far and wide getting into many misadventures and now lay on a hill gazing up at the sky Far above him. He noticed a large bird effortlessly flying above not even having to flap to stay aloft This bird was a turkey vulture. What a fine view that bird must have, thought Trickster. If I was able to fly like him, I could see for miles and miles and not have to tire myself walking here and there all over the land. Just as Trickster was looking at the bird though, the bird was looking at him. Wondering if this creature would make a good meal, turkey vulture began circling lower over Trickster. Now in these days, vulture was a vain and beautiful bird. Glossy black feathers covered him from head to tail. When he noticed Trickster looking at him, he decided to perch in a nearby dead tree and preen and allow Trickster a view of his beautiful coat. Trickster called out to the vulture. Ha-ho, little brother. I was watching you circling above. It must be very fine to fly with no effort at all. The bird did not reply. Trickster tried another tactic. Did I ever say how beautiful of a bird you are? This caught vulture's attention, and he replied, No, you didn't. Well, you are, really. I like the way the light shines off your feathers when you turn your head. But what I like best, said Trickster, turning the topic of conversation back to his desire to fly. But what I like best is the way you can see the whole world from where you are flying. I only wish you could give me a ride so I could also see. I could do that, said Vulture. But as he flew down nearer to Trickster, he scoffed. You're much too heavy. If I put you on my back, I would never be able to get off the ground. Well, I can fix that, said Trickster, and suddenly shrunk himself down until he was no bigger than a baby. He then climbed up on Vulture's back and they took off high into the sky. Trickster was ecstatic. He could see for hundreds of miles all around in every direction. Fly over there, towards the mountain, he cried, and Vulture obliged. Now towards the river. Quick, fly out towards the plains. I want to see. Vulture had thought Trickster only wanted a short ride and began to grow weary with his constant demands. Suddenly, he made a quick turn and Trickster clutched tightly to him, shouting, Whoa! Watch it, Vulture. I almost fell. This gave the vulture an idea, and he soared low towards the ground until he came to a blackened stump that had been hollowed out by fire. When he was directly over the stump, he made a graceful twirl, flipping Trickster off his back and into the stump. The stump was small enough that Trickster was stuck, and he was furious with his predicament. He called the bird every bad name he could think of, and just for good measure said, ''I'll get you back someday.'' He tried turning himself back to his normal size, hoping he would break out of the stump, but instead just wedged himself tighter. He had given up as a prisoner of the stump when suddenly heard Winnebago women out gathering firewood. He sang out in their language, I am a big mother raccoon. The women were interested and came over to the tree. The trickster called out again, I am a big mother raccoon. The women said, let's get this raccoon and began to chop away at the tree. When they had cut a small hole, trickster held up his blanket made out of raccoon fur, and the women peering inside cried out, it's a big fat one. We'll have to chop the hole bigger to get out. They chopped the hole until it was big enough Trickster could hop right out. Realizing they had been fooled, the women began to chase him with their axes, but he made his escape. Trickster wanted revenge on the vulture, and one day came up with a scheme. He turned himself into a buffalo and lay in a field, waiting for the carrion birds to find him. A hairy woodpecker was the first to find him, and since these birds make a lot of noise, he called out to the meat-eating birds, "'There's a big meal going to waste in the meadow!' Crows, magpies, hawks, and eagles descended on the buffalo, but its hide was so tough they couldn't pierce it. They tried to peck out its eyes, but Trickster shut them so tight that they couldn't pluck them out. The vulture watched from a tree, wary to come down to the buffalo. Finally, magpie had an idea. He would peck into the anus of the buffalo to gain access to the meat. He hammered away and eventually made an entry, allowing the birds to grab bits of fat. They looked up at vulture and said, Come down, brother. We saved the best parts for you, but it will be gone soon. The vulture, deciding it was safe, came down from his tree and stuck his head deep into the buffalo's rectum to get at the choicest meats. Mm. (laughs) Mmm. Suddenly the buffalo stood up and clamped his butthole tight around the vulture's neck. The vulture was trapped. The buffalo walked away with the vulture sticking out of him, finding a fresh stream to drink from and eating the choicest green grass, the kind that makes strong, hot buffalo chips. When he began to feel his bowels rumble, he relaxed his butthole and let loose, shooting Vulture's head out, along with a stream of gas and dung. Trickster turned himself back into his normal form and turned to Vulture. "'Well now,' he said, "'how did you like that dinner I served you?' Vulture was in shock, but managed to fly up to a nearby tree. He began to shake himself clean, but to his horror, the feathers on his head and neck fell off. Trickster laughed below and said, "'Because you abused me, forevermore your kind will have bald heads.' And no longer will people say that you are the most beautiful of birds, for in truth you are now the ugliest. And to this day, vultures are bald. This story is so great. Um, It has everything you need. Conflict, resolution, and plenty of buffalo shit. (laughs) Um, It also makes some really good observations about vulture behavior and um, uh, obviously uh, how they got their bald heads. Um, um, I always love that about Native American stories as they have so many good aspects of, like, actual animal behavior woven into, like, a really cool tale. So, um, we'll talk more about, uh, the great observations they picked up on throughout the episode, but first I want to go on to some vulture facts. The turkey vulture scientific name is genus Cathartes and species Aura. Cathartes, it comes from the Greek word catharsis, um, it means purifier. You might remember that from, like, I don't know, middle school- vocab english class or something catharsis uh i remember the first time you read the odyssey uh, english teachers would always talk about that so um really its genus means like purifier because these birds cleanse the land of animal carcasses and its species name is aura um we came across aura um as a species name with the golden flicker um because it is related to the latin aratus which means golden Uh, the reason why AU is the symbol for gold on the periodic table, and this would mean that the genus species name would translate roughly to golden purifier. Which does sound pretty cool, but I'm more in the camp that this refers to the Greek goddess of the breeze named Aura, making the scientific name translate to purifying breeze. I think this way more matches the behavior of turkey vultures that are majestically soaring on high, looking to rid the land of uh, rotting carcasses before they become too stinky. The black vulture's scientific name is way less romantic. Um, Its genus name is Koragypes. This genus name is made from smashing two Greek words together, korax meaning raven, and gypes meaning vulture, so literally it means raven vulture. Its species name is Atratus. This comes from putting a suffix on the Latin word atter for dull black to make it mean clothed in dull black. So the name is raven vulture clothed in dull black. Definitely not as good as purifying breeze, but hey. So now I'll go on to describe these birds a bit. Definitely check out the cover art um, and our social media posts for pictures of the black vulture and the turkey vulture. These were provided by Blue Ridge Wildlife Rehab Center. Um, They're nice enough to let me use them of patients that they had. Unfortunately, they do see these vultures a lot um, from car strikes and lead poisoning. And we're gonna talk about that later on. Definitely listen to my episodes where I interview um, staff at the Blue Ridge Wildlife Rehab Center um, about what you can do to help prevent lead poisoning, what you can do to help prevent window and car strikes for birds. So as I mentioned earlier, both these birds are very easy to spot because they're either soaring high in the sky or perched along roadsides. Um, They're almost oblivious to passing cars as they scarf down roadkill. And they're large birds too, they're bigger than a Canada goose, with the turkey vulture being the larger of the two. Close up you can easily tell them apart, turkey vultures have a bald bright red head um, and pale beak making them look kind of like a male turkey, while black vultures have an entirely black bald head. The head color often isn't a good way to tell them apart though because usually when you see them they are hundreds if not thousands of feet up in the air. My go-to method is to look at the coloring on the undersides of the wings. Turkey vultures have a gray or dirty white stripe that runs along the length of the back of their wings and extends all the way to their wingtips. It gives their wings a two-toned appearance. Black vultures, though, have almost entirely black wings. They just have a little, like, star of white at the very tips of their wing feathers. And when you're looking at these wings, you'll notice that they aren't smoothly contoured like a songbirds, but rather they have these finger-like projections sticking out. They share this trait with other soaring birds like hawks and eagles. There is a reason for that, which I will talk about later. I'm making you guys listen. (laughs) Um, For turkey vultures, these feathers are replaced every year in a very interesting sequence. These birds must fly for long distances and high up in the air to find dead bodies, so they must always be able to fly. Like, if they're grounded trying to molt their feathers, they're going to die. So instead, they replace their feathers in sequence, um, one at a time, so that they're always able to still fly. And this strategy is called Staffelmaster, which is a great German word. Another difference in these two birds is turkey vultures have a longer tail. It's really difficult to notice this, though, unless they're flying side by side. So if you see a bird soaring in the sky, barely even flapping its wings, it's probably a vulture. Crows and ravens kind of flap their wings constantly in flight. Hawks and eagles, they do this more flap, flap, fly, flap, flap, fly. Once you've confirmed it's a vulture, take a look at the wings. Are they bicolor, black and white, uh, which means it's a turkey vulture, or are they almost entirely black, which means it's a black vulture. But these birds aren't always just high flying up in the air. Sometimes they get a little too close for comfort. And here's a story from Kevin about a close encounter that his friends had with a vulture.
4: Hey John thanks for having me on your show and uh, thanks for taking on turkey vultures this week as your subject. It's weird but I've always had this fascination with vultures. Maybe it was from getting a good laugh from the Disney movie The Jungle Book. I don't know. Crazy how much that movie keeps popping up in my memories from my childhood. So back when I was a teenager living in Mississippi I took a summer job working for the county. The job was pretty much just road maintenance and since I had grown up driving tractors since I was like 12 this was a good fit for me and gave me more scenery to look at instead of a hundred acre soybean field my job was mowing medians and around the county government buildings and around bridges an exotic job using a bush hog to trim trees with kudzu I worked with a good friend Barry who was my age and we plowed through the county mowing waving at people cutting up and bringing in the big bucks okay so that that's kind of the background and during our day we came across a lot of roadkill in Mississippi deer snakes possum raccoons dogs I saw a cow one time as well crazy And when the supervisor drove around to check on us he would pass the locations of the roadkill to another team and that team was Percy and Bo I just love those names this duo was the roadkill Cleanup gang. <clears throat> Percy was a tall, skinny guy, and probably in his mid-60s, or he might have even been 70. And Bo was really short, round, overweight, maybe 40 years old. Bo was always smiling because he loved his job. And Percy pretty much supervised him and drove a double cab green Chevrolet truck with tools and carcasses hanging out the back. The typical pickup for them was drive to the kill. 40 miles per hour with the flashers on and Bo would put these huge rubber gloves on that reached to his rounded shoulders. Bo would open up the tailgate jabbering the whole time and pushing that carcass into the bed. They were a perfect team but sometimes Percy and Bo would be the truck to pull up at the end of the day to take you back to the county barn. Man that was one ripe truck. Barry and I we wouldn't get in, into that truck unless the windows were down and it was moving. The county probably didn't need more than one cleanup crew because vultures did an excellent job of finding and working a site pretty quick. I remember a lot of vultures in Mississippi probably it's in the heart of their breeding habitat on a map. It's got good weather, lots of food, water, trees, open farm fields. I've seen some kills that had 30 or 40 vultures on it at one time. That's a lot of activity. That's a barbecue if you think about it. And it would be gone in minutes or an hour. They had to be faster than Percy and Bo for sure. <clears throat> one one memorable hot summer day we were near the county dump site mowing. It was a this deep pit that the county had removed gravel and filled back in with yard waste. And of course dead carcasses from Percy and Bo. The pit was maybe 60 feet deep and it had a cut road that spiraled down into the bottom. There must have been a hundred vultures that hung out in that pit. Percy and Bo, they drove up and they must have been something, there must have been something in the bed of that truck because they started to drive down into the pit and you could hear Percy squawking at Bo with the truck windows down. And All of a sudden this huge vulture swooped down from the rim and it flew right into the driver's side back window of that truck. They started yelling, and the truck sped up, and it started to swerve going down that road. I was watching and scared Percy was going to turn that truck over in that pit. Percy's high-pitched voice, Get the broom! Get the broom! Get him, Bo! And Bo was yelling back, Percy! Percy! I can't, Percy! Percy! And when that bird flew out the other side window, There was dust and feathers and a whole lot of bird sounds. That bird was flying fast and getting the hell out of there. That bird was Moab, the mother of all buzzards. I'm pretty damn, that's gotta be pretty damn brave to fly into a window of a moving vehicle. They always seem like the skittish type to me. Everybody was all right. Percy looked like he had seen a ghost, and Bo was just smiling. I can't believe they even asked us if we wanted to ride back. Barry and I was like, we good, we good, riding back in another truck. Barry and I laughed so hard telling that story. We were celebrities back at the barn because everybody wanted to hear it. (laughs) So that's my story about uh, vultures. That's the most memorable story I have about the vulture. Uh, Thanks again for, for having me on your show.
2: That's an awesome story, and, uh, and you do a good job telling it, Kevin. Thank you for sending that in. When you look at the range map of these birds, the black vulture especially, the United States only makes up a tiny portion of it. Both species are found throughout all of Mexico, Central America, and South America. The black vulture doesn't do cold as well as a turkey vulture does. Um, It isn't as strong as a long-distance flyer either, so it kind of shies away from the lowest part of South America, like Argentina, and it limits its northern range to the southern United States. (laughs) There's some titmice, like, hopping right around, checking out what the hell I'm doing. (laughs) The turkey vulture, though, has a much wider range. It can be found in summertime throughout almost all the United States and even up into southern parts of Canada and then also it's found all over Central America and and virtually all of South America. And this huge range makes the turkey vulture the most widespread vulture in the world. In the spring and fall turkey vultures in the northern part of the range migrate to the southern U.S. or down to Central and South America. This is especially true in the West Coast, like turkey vultures that reside in California and up in Washington, Oregon in the summer. They make a really strong migration down through Central America to like Colombia and Venezuela, and they can be seen migrating in the tens of thousands. Like hawks, they only migrate a day. Um, this is opposed to many songbirds who only migrate at night, and they can travel 200 miles in a day. Black vultures do some smaller migrations, often like they'll be in the mountains in the summertime and then just move down to the valleys in the winter. Nothing like the migration of the turkey vultures though. And of course, populations that are in warmer areas will just stay there year round. One of the main reasons these guys can't stand a hard winter is less about tolerating the cold. Like, just think about it. These guys soar really high up in the air. Pilots have seen them up to 25,000 feet, and it's super cold up there. So, and, and you know, they're just soaring, having a good time. They're fine. So it's more about the scant scavenging um, on food in the wintertime. Obviously, if snow is covering up carcasses, it makes it hard. And if the meat is frozen, then they're not going to be able to eat it. I have one more interesting tidbit um, involving their migration. If you've listened to my other episodes, you'll be familiar with uh, Bergman's rule. Um, It's an eco-geographical rule that states that in a widely distributed species, those that reside in colder climates will have larger body sizes in order to minimize surface area and conserve heat. Turkey vultures follow Bergman's rule. And North American populations are larger than those farther south. So like those turkey vultures that migrate from like California, Washington, Oregon, uh, down to Venezuela, they're bigger than their South American cousins. So when they get down there, they just body out the smaller turkey vultures and, you know, compete with them for carcasses. I can't imagine being, you know, this South American turkey vulture, kind of on the small side, and then these big dudes show up and they're like, nah, that's my meat. And as is a similar story for many bird species, a warming climate means the breeding range of turkey vultures and black vultures is expanding farther north. Um, It's not all just from warming climate, though. Also, there's an increase of people leaving rural areas and moving to cities. This leaves many abandoned barns and buildings, which are perfect nesting sites for vulture parents. And then finally, um, the rebound in deer population has helped these guys too. Deer were almost hunted to extinction in the early 1900s, but they've rebounded pretty nicely. Um, They're not back up to historical levels, but obviously as the deers increase, and also there's tons of cars on the road, there's a lot of roadkill for them to eat. And while everyone knows what vultures eat, dead stuff, the story about how they find their food is really interesting. There's been a lot of speculation and research over the years on how they find their food. Because they're seen up high, soaring through the air, people speculated that they use a keen sense of eyesight, similar to like a hawk, um, to look down and spot carcasses. Others, though, argue that vultures smell the rotting flesh and that's how they found their food. Birds aren't well known for their sense of smell, though. Um, there's been a number of very interesting experiments using hidden rotting carcasses or paintings of dead deer to try to determine whether it's smell or sight that aids vultures in finding dead animals. Over the years though, we've started to suss it out and, um, especially for the turkey vulture, it's both. It's long been obvious that smell plays a role um, with the turkey vulture finding their food. You've probably never heard of the chemical methane thiol, um, but you've definitely smelled it before. It's partially responsible for the odor of smelly cheese, bad breath, farts, stinky paper mills, and that funky smell your pee gets after eating asparagus. It also turns out to be released by decomposing tissue. In the early 1900s, natural gas companies began mixing methane thiol into their methane gas so that people could detect leaks of the ordinary odorless methane gas. Natural gas pipeline workers soon noticed that wherever there were leaks in the pipeline, there would be a big flock of turkey vultures circling above it. Interestingly, these large flocks of circling vultures are called a kettle because they resemble bubbles circling and rising in boiling water. Vultures do this behavior for a variety of reasons, such as riding thermal air currents to gain altitude or even just to play. Um, but they also circle like this when they locate prey and they are kind of going down the air column and figuring out where it's coming from and slowly circling down towards it. Methane thiol is just one of several chemicals these birds likely use to locate their dead prey, but that was definitely kind of a giveaway that they're using smell. And it's really the turkey vulture that's the scent detective. The black vulture doesn't have near as good of a sense of smell. And most new world vultures really don't use smell very much. There are some exceptions that I'll uh, talk about later. But when you look at the turkey vulture beak, it's crammed full of scent receptors. um, So much so that their large nostrils don't even have a septum dividing it. You can look at a turkey vulture from the side and look straight through from one nostril to another. Furthermore, um, dissections of the neurological tracts in turkey vultures have revealed an incredibly large olfactory bulb and a vast array of mitral cells. Mitral cells are the nerve cells that carry smell information to the brain. And although they have smaller brains than the black vultures do, the turkey vulture olfactory bulb is four times as big as that in the black vulture. And in fact, if you adjust for the brain size of turkey vultures compared to their olfactory bulb, it's the largest olfactory bulb in the bird world. Now, right here, I have a chance to answer one of Kevin's questions.
4: I've heard and maybe seen vultures eyeing a kill. I heard they're not waiting for it to die. They're waiting for it to get ripe so it would be easier to eat and clean the bone. Is that true or is that a myth?
2: So Kevin, as he says, as an animal rots and ripens, um, it gets obviously stinkier, it emits more particles, and therefore it's easier for vultures to find. But this does not correlate with how appetizing vultures find the carcass. Vultures prefer freshly dead animals, um, although they often have a difficult time finding them. Usually the animal needs to decay a little bit and get nice and stinky for vultures to find it. And actually, if an animal is too far along in the putrefication process, vultures will turn their beak up at it. And I know I just talked a lot about smell, but sight is also an important cue for these birds. Experiments have shown that even when they can smell a hidden rotting carcass, they won't land unless they can see it. These are big birds, and it takes a lot of energy to get off the ground, so they need to be absolutely sure they're going to get a meal before they land. Like their relatives, hawks and owls, vultures have extremely good eyesight, uh, but this is during the day only. They have very bad night vision, and that's why you often see them roosting in trees or on mountain cliffs at nighttime. And they don't just use sight to look for prey. They also use their sight to look for other vultures. Um, They're always on the lookout for vultures doing that spiral maneuver because it means that there's some food and they can join in on it. Black vultures seem to especially do this. They look for turkey vultures specifically because they're like, oh... The turkey vulture probably smells something. I should hang out with him. Black vultures specialize more in finding carrion in wide open fields. Um, and so they don't do as well when there's forests, um, cause the trees kind of obscure any dead bodies down there. So they look to the turkey vultures to sniff out the rotting meat and observations show that turkey vultures are often the first on the scene of a new carcass and across the range, they consistently show up before black vultures, condors, king vultures, and the crested caracara. Once they get to a carcass, uh, there can be a lot of competition over the limited meat. Not surprisingly, age and body size are the most important factors um, when black vultures and turkey vultures compete. You know, among their own species. However, there is some interesting interactions between different species too. Lone black vultures that show up at a carcass that's already swarmed with turkey vultures are consistently beaten back. However, when black vultures show up in force, sometimes numbering in the hundreds, they drive off all other species trying to feed. And our Native American story that we opened with kind of, um, hinted at this, but it's really not the amount of meat that limits feeding. It's access to it. Black vultures and turkey vultures have relatively weak beaks, um, and they're unable to rip through the tough hides of larger prey. So, competition can be really fierce for access areas like the mouth, the anus, or any wounds in the animal that allow access to the meeting guts. Of course, eyeballs are easy to get to and are often the first things kind of plucked out, um, hence why Trickster uh, shut his eyes really tight. Um, but yeah, the that's so cool that Native Americans notice that, oh yeah, they like to, you know, go for the rectum first as an access point, and I guess Trickster knew that too, and so uh, he used that to his advantage to give turkey vulture a very shitty meal and make him bald in the process. In areas where turkey vulture and black vulture ranges overlap with stronger beaked vultures like the king vulture or the indian condor, um, turkey and black vultures rely on these stronger birds to kind of tear some holes in the carcass for them. In the competition with black vultures, turkey vultures also seem to have adapted a little different feeding strategy where they will find out small-sized carcasses and eat those. Um, Normally, black vultures would ignore like a dead chipmunk, but uh, turkey vultures, you know, they, they need all the food they can get. And vultures don't only eat dead animals. They're sometimes seen at landfills, picking through the trash. They've been observed eating plant matter like pumpkins, grapes, coconuts... Occasionally they will kill and eat wounded animals or nestlings of other birds. John James Audubon especially emphasizes that turkey vultures and uh, black vultures prey on heron nests a lot. Um, I didn't see that repeated much elsewhere, though. I did see turkey vultures listed as a cause of laughing gull chick mortality at nesting colonies in New Jersey, but um, it appears that the more aggressive black vulture is more likely to go after live prey than turkey vultures are. There's some reports of them fishing, too. Um, They seem to be few and far between, um, and only when the fishing is easy. Like, I saw an account of some black vultures that dived in after fish that had been attracted um, up to the surface by the rain of vulture shit coming from a roosting tree that was over the pond. Um, I also saw that they will sometimes fish in, you know, like those um, small man-made pools, like at spillways that fish will get trapped in. Um, However, there was one account I saw where a turkey vulture straight waded up into the water and snatched up a 10-centimeter fish, so that's pretty impressive. Sometimes domesticated animals can be um, easy targets for vultures. In 1947 in Kentucky, black vultures were reported to kill several small piglets on a farm. Um, They also appear to have a taste for lamb, um, having been caught killing them in both West Virginia and Texas. Turkey vultures are sometimes blamed for these attacks, but more likely they're just being confused with black vultures. Um, also like vultures are just really easy scapegoats. They're ugly. No one really likes them. And in a lot of cases that I read, um, probably the animal either died of some other cause and Turkey and the farmer walked out and just saw vultures eating it. Um, or actually like as far as like with young animals, you know, maybe it was a stillbirth and apparently vultures really like afterbirth and placenta and stuff. So maybe they came down to eat that. And then, you know, the farmer saw the dead calf or whatever and thought it was the vultures doing it but this kind of scapegoating of vultures has led to some farmers um, killing them over the years. Um, I saw some reports in Texas where they would routinely set out buzzard traps in the early and mid-1900s. In a study in 1954 this Texas researcher interviewed 66 ranchers on how many black and turkey vultures they had caught um, and killed Um, and he made a conservative estimation at 100,000. Many ranchers apparently told him, after about a thousand, you stop counting. Luckily, the Migratory Bird Treaty uh, put an end to a lot of these killings. Something that really makes me think that a lot of these stories of killing livestock are not true is because these birds really don't have the strong talons that hawks and owls do. Um, it's pretty hard for them to to, you know, kill something. Um, and they're actually so weak that they can't move stuff with their talons. They can really only use them for perching, so when you do see them carrying away food, it's always with their beak. Similar to owls, these guys will regurgitate up pellets of the indigestible parts um, from their meals like bones, teeth, and hair. This is used by researchers a lot. They'll go underneath their roosting trees and collect the pellets to figure out what the vultures have been eating. One more interesting fact on their feeding, the zone-tailed hawk of the American Southwest um, has kind of taken an evolutionary advantage um, of the constant presence of turkey vultures soaring in the sky. The zone-tailed hawk looks a lot like a turkey vulture from below. It has those bicolored wings and it'll even fly like them and, and glide right amongst them. And, you know, if you're a dove or a lizard and you look up and you see some turkey vultures, you're not really worried. Like, they're not going to come down and try to kill you. So the zone-tailed hawks will take advantage of this and then fly with the vultures like, hey, you know, I'm just a vulture, and then swoop down and get an easy meal. So now I want to talk about some of the physical adaptations that these birds have, which are pretty remarkable. First off, to be able to eat dead, rotting meat, you gotta have a strong stomach, Um, and these vultures really do. Their stomach has a pH of 1 or less, allowing them to kill harmful bacteria and toxins like botulism and anthrax. As a comparison, the human stomach pH hovers around like 1.5 to 3.5. And I'm pretty sure pH is a logarithmic scale, don't quote me on that, I suck at math, so actually a jump from 1.5 to 1 is pretty significant. And really, the other huge adaptation of these birds is their ability to thermoregulate. They occur over a really wide range of habitats, from temperate forests to dry, hot deserts. And this also gives me an opportunity to answer another one of Kevin's questions.
4: Is it true that a vulture's head is bald so they can eat faster without getting their feathers messed up? So, Kevin, that myth is half right. The bald, featherless head does definitely make
2: it easier for them to thrust it inside of animal carcasses without getting too messy and also not, you know, pulling back against the grain on their feathers. Um, But also, this head is perfect for radiating off excess heat. The neck of turkey vultures um, is also bald, and when they um, are overheated, they will extend their neck out fully to maximize the amount of heat they can dissipate off. They will also spread their wings, which have less feathers on the underside um, and allow a greater surface area for heat dissipation. The vascular system of these birds um, also aids in them getting rid of heat. An anatomical study I saw of turkey vultures found the naked skin on the head and neck is full of superficial blood vessels. As the bird heats up, more blood is diverted to these shallow blood vessels, turning the head a deep red color and allowing heat to radiate off um, their body into the environment interestingly you can tell a turkey vulture is cold because its head will be more of a pink color some of the vessels in their head and neck also lead to a pair of larger veins called the ophthalmic retii um, which come in close contact with the arteries supplying the eyes and the brains and so this blood coming from the head that's a little bit cooler will cool off the arterial blood before it enters the vulture's central nervous system um, and help prevent them getting heat stroke the arteries leading to the wings of vultures are also similar they're wrapped in this torturous system of veins that allows heat to flow from the arteries into the more shallow veins of the wings to then be transferred out into the environment vultures have also been observed doing something called golar fluttering um, it's similar to a dog panting they will open their mouth and vibrate muscles in their throat to promote cooling by evaporation Their unfeathered legs and feet can also be used to thermoregulate, um, but in a much grosser way. Vultures will shit on their own legs so that the water will evaporate and cool them off. This is called urohydrosis, literally it means urine sweat, (laughs) so very disgusting. On the opposite end of the spectrum, turkey vultures survive cold nights by lowering their body temperatures, similar to the state of turpor done by black-capped chickadees. Their body temperatures have been recorded as falling down to 93 degrees Fahrenheit on a cold night. And they also warm up by using their wings too. Often when you see them roosting in a tree or on a building, you see turkey and black vulture spreading their wings into a T-pose. They seem to do this more when it's sunny out or after damp nights, suggesting that they use their wings like solar panels to warm up and also to dry off their bodies. There's also been speculation that this behavior helps kill parasites, but the research doesn't support it. Speaking of staying warm, since I moved to the spruce forest, it's uh, a lot colder. The sun doesn't really get down here, and so I'm shivering a little bit. But uh, uh, the birds have moved into the sunny parts of the branches and are just singing away and loving it. Um, I hope you guys can hear them a little bit. So let's keep talking about their wings. Um, They're really amazing adaptations. Um, It's super important for these guys to spend long amounts of time in the air looking for food while also expending as little energy as possible. One thing you'll notice right off the bat about their wings is that they are fat and relatively short for their body size. They are still massive. A fully grown turkey vulture has like a six foot wingspan. Um, But this ratio of bird weight to wing size, um, which is termed wing load, um, allows them to take full advantage of updrafts caused by wind moving over hills, mountains, and buildings, and also uprising thermal currents. When you see vultures circling in the air, uh, they are less often circling a dead food item than they are looping around and around to stay inside of a thermal air current. These short wings also make them highly maneuverable while in the air. But, these stubby wings do come at a cost. They produce a lot of drag, which slows down their flying speed. Vultures would have to flap a lot and expend a lot of energy to overcome this drag if it wasn't for another adaptation, their finger-like feather projections. While their main wings are short and fat, their finger projections are long and skinny, which reduces wind turbulence and allows the birds to stay aloft even at slow speeds. These aerodynamics that I'm talking about come from the principle of wing aspect ratio. I'm not going to go into detail about that. I'm not good at physics. think I got a C on it in college, but um, in summary, these short fat wings are great for catching updrafts and maneuvering while the fanned out wing tips help to reduce drag. Additionally, vultures minimize flapping by slightly flying downward while they're in an upward air current. By pointing themselves downward, they're maintaining thrust without having to flap but continue to rise up in the air by gliding downward at a slower speed than the air is pushing them up. Turkey vultures also have one additional adaptation to avoid flapping. You'll notice them often holding their wings in a V formation while they're soaring or rocking side to side. When I first saw a turkey vulture do this, I thought that, I don't know, they lost their balance or something because it kind of looks like they just got buffeted by an air current. But it's on purpose. It's a thing called contorted soaring. By holding their wings in that V position and adding a little wobble, they can create lift without flapping. This behavior is also a great way to tell um, a turkey vulture from a black vulture because black vultures always hold their wings out straight. And while they're larger than black vultures, turkey vultures have lighter wing loads. And so it allows them to soar closer to the ground, so they kind of have their nose closer to the ground to sniff out prey um, and also to look a little closer in heavily wooded areas. So after learning about those adaptations, I definitely respect these birds a little more. They're not just flying around looking for an easy dead meal. Like, they have some pretty crazy evolutionary changes that help them be successful. And although these birds appear very ugly to us, they obviously find beauty in each other. Both black and turkey vultures are monogamous and stay together year-round. In the weeks leading up to egg-laying, turkey vultures will perform elaborate aerial courtship rituals. Mimicking each other's movements in a graceful flying dance. Black vultures also perform courtship rituals. Um, They will dive and chase each other. Um, Sometimes a single female will be circled on the ground by a group of bachelor males who spread their wings and try to entice her. Turkey vultures do a similar ritual too, where they will circle and hop while spreading their wings. These vultures reuse nest sites year after year and will often spend time together at the nest site in the days leading up to the egg laying. And both of these species lay their eggs directly on the ground and build no nest to speak of. Here's an opportunity for me to answer another question from Kevin.
4: You always see vultures in trees or on the ground. Where are their nests? Do they take meat back to the chicks or do they regurgitate food for the
2: young? So yeah, where are their nests? You never see them in trees or anything like that, like, you know, the way you see a hawk nest or an eagle nest. And that's because they like to lay their eggs straight on the ground, like I said. Um, And so they prefer sheltered cavities such as caves, ledges, um, abandoned buildings, abandoned hawk nests, um, a hollow tree, sometimes even just stumps or brush piles on the ground. One of the reasons why you never see their nests is turkey vultures are pretty shy where they nest at. They choose pretty remote places that are far from human disturbances. Black vultures, though, seem to be able to tolerate a lot more human presence. In South America especially, they are known for nesting on window ledges and crevices and skyscrapers um, in cities such as Lima, Peru, and in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Wherever it is, though, once these guys find a suitable nesting site, the female will lay two eggs, usually one a day, and begin incubation. Very rarely one or three eggs will be laid, almost never four, Um, and the eggs are actually very pretty. Um, They range from like a cream color to a light green, and they have brown flecks on them. Both parents incubate the eggs, um, but in most of the studies I've read, the female spends more time on the nest in general. They have a fairly long incubation period, 28 to 40 days for the turkey vulture, and 38 to 39 days in the black vulture. And the young, when they emerge, are actually pretty freaking adorable. Um, Black vulture nestlings are covered in a yellow or a pink down, and they have their eyes open. Turkey vulture nestlings um, are covered in a white down, and are often born blind. Unlike their parents, they don't have naked heads, and they're just entirely coated in this fuzzy layer of feathers. These guys are like the reverse of ugly ducklings. Um, They come out as these very little huggable fluff balls, and then they grow up to be bald, dead animal-eating birds just shitting on their own feet. (laughs) (laughs) And once they're born, their growth rate is actually pretty slow compared to other raptors, um, possibly because of the unpredictable nature of finding food sources. They have to get lucky and find a dead animal and bring it back to their nest to regurgitate it to their nestlings. It takes about 60 to 98 days for these vultures to be ready to leave their nest. Um, And even once they leave the nest, they will remain with their parents until the fall and sometimes longer. Roosting groups of black and turkey vultures are often made up of interrelated individuals who help keep watch from predators. There's some pretty crazy social dynamics that go on, even like the giant roost you see of like a hundred vultures in a tree. Like, they all know their place in the hierarchy. Um, I didn't find a lot of good studies that kind of laid out, you know, whether it's patriarchal matriarchal mixture of both Um, but if an intruder vulture who isn't closely related um, approaches a roost they are driven away sometimes these roosting colonies are not welcome though especially when they begin to take over trees in suburban neighborhoods Um, and there's stories of them just raining down bird shit and half-digested food pellets from the skies um, on you know these poor families but the birds aren't trying to mess with us Um, Like, their habitat is increasingly getting fragmented, so it leaves few good roost sites for them. Also, all the concrete we have in suburbia radiates heat back at night and kind of makes them a good place to hang out. People have used various means to discourage vultures um, from outright killing them, to hanging dead vultures from trees, to using pyrotechnics or vulture effigies. Um, They have some limited success. Um, I think it's important for people to keep in mind that while the vultures may seem like an eyesore on your property, without them there'd be dead animal carcasses littering the roadsides everywhere. The vocalizations portion on these birds is uh, short and sweet. Um, You've probably never heard a vulture make a sound, and that's because they don't have a voice box. Um, Both black and turkey vultures lack a syrinx. Um, The syrinx is the anatomical voice box of birds. It's similar to the larynx in humans that has our vocal cords um, and allows me to talk on this podcast right now. So, since they don't have a vocal organ, they only communicate with grunts and hisses. And you usually only hear them do this when they're on the nest site. Or if they're, like, fighting over a body. Or jostling at their roosting site. All right, folks, hang in there. Uh, We're reaching the final lap in this podcast. I'm going to talk about kind of the parasites, diseases, and predators of these birds, and then also touch on their evolutionary history. So one of the significant diseases of these birds is avian pox. Um, It's a pox virus that's kind of related to smallpox in humans. There's a respiratory slash digestive form that has a really high mortality um, and, you know, pretty much kills birds, but is much rarer. Um, However, the cutaneous form um, affects their bald heads. It has a low mortality rate, but it's much more common. So sometimes you'll see a turkey vulture or a black vulture that has these nodules or pustules on their head. Um, It's spread from bird to bird and is seen more during the fall or winter when they're migrating or roosting in large numbers. They can also carry some other infections like avian malaria, West Nile virus and Venezuela equine encephalitis. Um, Overall, though, like, it's a myth that these birds carry and spread disease. If anything, they help prevent it by eating a lot of dead animals. I saw that they kind of carry the normal flora of feather mites and lice that most bird species has. Nothing really special. They're pretty large birds um, who spend a lot of their time in the air, so they don't have many true predators. The vast majority of predation occurs when they're on the ground nesting or maybe when they're feeding on a carcass because then they're vulnerable to mammalian predators. However, other birds are known to attack them. Their main defense mechanism is to vomit. Um, This provides a distracting meal to whatever's pursuing them and possibly grosses them out. Um, Also, it's been proposed that uh, when they vomit, they lighten uh, their body, so then they're able to take off the ground um, a little easier. But probably this is less true than just they're vomiting up a meal, and so then the predator is like, oh, well, this is easier than chasing down some giant feathered thing. However, this defense mechanism has backfired a little bit on them. Some birds take advantage of this behavior and will harass vultures in order to encourage them to vomit and get an easy meal. Caracaras, golden eagles, and bald eagles um, have all been observed bothering vultures until they disgorge their stomach contents. Usually the vulture isn't harmed in these encounters. Um, other than having to puke up a meal, they'd rather digest. Um, they're usually let off, you know, scot-free. But sometimes things can get a lot rougher. Um, I saw accounts of golden eagles swooping down um, out of the sky at low-soaring turkey vultures and pinning them to the ground. Audubon also relays one account where a bald eagle was harassing a unfortunate turkey vulture um, until it vomited. But the turkey vulture had been feeding on animal entrails, and so this, like, long piece of intestine was, like, stuck hanging out of its throat. And the bald eagle, seemingly furious at the vulture for refusing to vomit, um, killed it. And they use this defense mechanism, like, anytime they're agitated. So there's stories about people walking underneath trees where they're um, roosting and just getting vomited upon. So just leave these guys alone when they're in a tree. Eagles aren't the only birds messing with them, though. Um, in 1972, in Guilford, Connecticut, two mallard ducks, a female and a male, were observed um, coming up out of a marsh and attacking a low-flying turkey vulture. They kind of did a really coordinated attack, like one would dive bomb from above and the other one would attack from below. Um, eventually, the turkey vulture like executed a few rolls and quick turns and then was able to gain altitude and get away from the ducks, who returned back to their marsh. I think in this case, it's possible the ducks either like mistook the vulture for a hawk, trying to get at their nestlings, or, I don't know, maybe they had lost nestlings to vultures before, and so, you know, they were driving it off. The major concern for these birds, though, isn't predators or disease or eagles coming at them. It's um, stuff caused by humans. Um, collisions are a major concern for these guys. Um, their habit of feeding by roadsides or um, on trash near human habitation puts them at risk for striking buildings or cars. Radio and cell towers can also be a collision point for them, especially during their migrations. But really the big concern is poisoning. Um, these guys are scavengers, so they're prone to poisoning by many contaminants. Pesticides and mercury make their way up the food chain in collecting the tissues of larger-sized mammals and reptiles that these birds feed on. Plastic ingestion may also be a problem in these birds. Um, It's been found that in the regurgitated pellets of vultures um, There's plastic in them a lot of times, but there's not enough research to know how it affects them Additionally lead mostly from lead bullets um, left in gut piles from hunted animals um, are a huge problem for these birds I mentioned the uh, Blue Ridge Wildlife Center. Um, I did an interview with veterinarian Dr. Jen Riley um, that you should definitely check out. Um, She treats tons of animals that have lead poisoning um, and talks about, uh, you know, its effects and then um, also how to prevent it. Just to give one example of how detrimental lead can be. Um, One of the major reasons why the California condor, um, a bird on the verge of extinction, has been unable to maintain a stable wild population is because they're extremely sensitive to lead. So that may partially answer uh, one of your questions, Kevin, that you uh, left me. As I mentioned earlier, historically, these birds have sometimes been trapped or shot um, because people believed that they spread disease or that they were killing their animals. Um, Luckily, with education and laws protecting these species, this doesn't seem to happen much anymore. Um, But vultures used to be killed in the thousands up until the 1970s. Getting some really good recordings of cardinal songs right now. The population of black vultures and turkey vultures are pretty stable, um, and they're both listed as least concern on their conservation status. It's estimated there are about 4.5 million turkey vultures, um, and the population of black vultures is likely similar. These birds are pretty long-lived, um, especially in captivity. The oldest known wild black vulture was 25 years, six months old, and the oldest wild turkey vulture was 16 years old. However, captive turkey vultures can live as long as 45 years. Studies of turkey vulture mortality do show um, a mortality rate of 21.5%. It's not terrible, but you know, not great. Um, and few birds make it over 10 years of age. Um, the first three years of turkey vulture life appears to be particularly rough. Um, and like they're still figuring the world out, how to fly, all that, and they're low on the hierarchy when they do get to a carcass. So finally, let's talk a bit about these birds' evolution. Probably one of the most interesting big picture takeaways of the new world vulture evolution is that they are not closely related to buzzards um, of the rest of the world. So if you hear someone calling out a turkey vulture, a turkey buzzard, um, and you're like, hey, no, they're actually vultures, not buzzards, and they're like, same thing, turkey buzzard, you know, turkey vulture, um, it's actually not. Um, there's a pretty big split. New World vultures are part of the Asipita group. Um, these include bird of prey, like ospreys, hawks, um, and also the terrifying terrestrial secretary bird. This bird family formed um, as part of the Afro-Aves radiation um, when the supercontinent Gondwana broke up about 170 million years ago into Proto-South America and Africa on one side and Proto-Australia, Antarctica, and Madagascar on the other. Um, early developing bird species were isolated from each other and then they began to develop independently. So in this early Africa-South america Um, the common ancestor to all hawks, eagles, and vultures began to differentiate into different species. And this ancestor is kind of like more of a half dinosaur, half bird thing, um, because we're still in the late Jurassic and early Cretaceous period at this time. Um, But Also, there's not really a difference between half dinosaur, half bird. Uh, Birds are dinosaurs. Um, Anyway, though, this ancestor was certainly an apex predator and began to fill in different niches um, and evolve new hunting strategies. Following the mass extinction um, that I'm doing air quotes here, kill the dinosaurs, uh, around 66 million years ago, um, many more niches were opened up and uh, birds and mammals began to explode in diversity. Somewhere along this way, this predatory ancestor lost some of its teeth and claws and decided to take up a more scavenging lifestyle. And actually, the New World vultures are the most morphologically primitive of the birds of prey. I mean, just listen to this. Yeah, that thing's a living dinosaur for sure. Other Aceptor ancestors continued with their hunt-and-kill strategy, um, but not the New World vultures who continued to succeed eating dead bodies for tens of millions of years. In fact, um, this is such a successful strategy that later on another predatory bird decided to hang up its claws and begin eating carrion. Interestingly, this appears to have occurred in South America, um, but the descendants of the buzzard genus Buteo now all reside outside the Americas. But back to the New World vultures. It wasn't until later on in the early paleogene era that they began to really diversify. There were lots of crazy vulture species during this time, the most impressive being the teratons, a group of birds that probably were like a modern-day condor except bigger. One called Argentavius magnificens is the largest known flying bird to ever exist and weighed 150 pounds and had a 20-foot wingspan. These ancient New World vultures were not just confined to the Americas either. Fossils related to modern-day vultures have been found in France, making the term New World vulture kind of a misnomer. The turkey vulture genus, Cathartes, and the black vulture genus, Coragyps divided in the mid Miocene, which was about 14 million years ago, a time when North America had large areas of savanna woodland with abundant large herbivores. This is a scavenger's paradise. Like, a dead giant sloth is totally going to feed a lot of vultures. Um, However, competition between these scavengers was likely intense, and over time, Cathartes vultures developed a better and better sense of smell. With this better sense of smell, these vultures were able to find food faster than other scavengers, also locate stuff hidden under trees or rocks, and it also allowed them to exploit smaller dead prey items that were overlooked by other vultures. This has allowed the Cathartes vultures to continue to succeed alongside other larger and more aggressive scavenger birds like condors, caracas, and the black vulture. The lesser and greater yellow-headed vultures of South America are also in the Cathartes genus. They're a sister species to the turkey vulture, um, and they also use smell significantly in their hunting strategy. As the megafauna of America began to die out within the past 20,000 years or so, scavenging birds began to die out too the great diversity within the New World vultures has now dwindled down to just seven species, several of which, like the Californian condor, are close to extinction. The modern-day black vulture, Coragyps atratus, is likely derived from a prehistoric precursor called Corigypes occidentalis, um, whose remains have been found in the La Brea tar pits and also in fossils deposited in caves, um, including in large bone piles called middens left by Native Americans in Oregon. There's some debate on whether Ossodentalis was uh, statistically different in size than the modern-day black vulture. Um, Some people say it was bigger. Other analysis says it's smaller. But there's kind of a clear division where it's like these Ossodentalis bones and then all of a sudden it's the Atratus bones. So they think that, you know, kind of occidentalis evolved into Atratus. And this is really cool because um, I think it's interesting on how much change has happened so quickly with New World vultures in just a few thousand years. And it's kind of a cautionary tale, too, because while we see vultures everywhere, we think there's plenty of them, plenty of dead deer for them to eat. Subtle changes down lower in the food chains have these rippling effects upwards to these birds. And I want to wrap up this episode with just a couple remarks on um, vultures and humans. Um, as I've mentioned a few times in this episode, vultures get a bad rap with humans because they're ugly and associated with deaths. One understandable reason to dislike these birds, though, is if you're a pilot or an air traffic controller. Bird striking aircraft is a big concern. Um, there's been airplane crashes and significant plane damage caused by even just a pigeon hitting an aircraft. Um, but airports have various measures for deterring birds. Vultures, though, due to their large size, can be particularly stubborn and particularly bad if they hit your plane. Luckily, there haven't been any plane crashes that I could find caused by turkey or black vultures, but there have been some significant strikes and a lot of damage. Um, At Randolph Air Force Base in Texas, I saw there was a student with his flight instructor. They were going 400 miles an hour when they struck a black vulture, and it ripped the entire top off of the cockpit and injured the student. Fortunately, though, the flight instructor took control, and they safely landed the plane. Um, also, apparently in Brazil, um, vultures cause a lot of damage to planes, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. And there's a wide variety of non-lethal strategies that um, airports use to deter vultures from hanging out there. Um, but sometimes they'll have to seek special permission um, from the government to call numbers of vultures. I'm normally against killing birds, but I don't know. This seems a little bit necessary, and also it seems like um, they donate the bodies of the cold birds um, to researchers um, that then use them in some of the studies that I read to prepare for this episode. And despite their downsides, we really need vultures. Without them, humanity would suffer greatly. Um, in India and Pakistan, around 2007, there was a massive die-off of vultures, and um, These vultures were thought to have died from eating dead cattle who, while alive, were treated with an arthritis drug that proved toxic to the vultures. Um, With no vultures to quickly swoop in and eat dying flesh, um, dead bodies of animals were left for feral dogs to eat. And their population then exploded. Um, And wherever there's feral dogs, there's rabies, which soon became a crisis in India with 30,000 people dying from it every year. So vultures are really important not only for keeping bodies from piling up and looking unsightly, but also from protecting us from diseases spreading and from like rippling effects that we wouldn't even be able to predict. Unsurprisingly, the native peoples of North America also recognized the importance of vultures. The Eastern Cherokee were particularly impressed with their ability to withstand eating dead animals, um, and especially animals that had died of disease. Drinking a vulture's blood or hanging a dead vulture in one's house was thought to help prevent disease. Also, bandages made out of vulture down were often used for bullet and arrow wounds. Interestingly, the Eastern Cherokee appear to have had um, a similar origin story for the baldness of the vulture that the Winnebago people had. Um, so it's really cool. I'm no anthropologist, but like you know, the Winnebago people were thousands of miles away from the Eastern Cherokee, and they have this similar story about vultures. So i'm thinking like maybe early on and you know native peoples coming over um into america they you know realized the importance of vultures and it factored into the very earliest stories so um yeah these are cool birds they're conspicuous birds they're really misunderstood um i hope from this episode you got some cool fun facts about them and have a new understanding of them um Often, like, if you're out birding and you see a turkey vulture or a black vulture, you know, you're like, Pfft, like, I don't even want to look at it in the binoculars. So I'm way more encouraged to look at them, to observe their flight behavior. Um, they're really graceful and they're really cool. So, as always, let me know what you think of the show. Um, I'll have some upcoming episodes, some interviews. Um, uh, I do have to say, I, in a few months, um, I start my residency. Um uh, for internal medicine and uh, I'll probably be very very busy so Dirty Bird might have a little slow point there but uh, I'll try to get some good episodes out for you guys soon. Alright, thank you for listening and as always, stay dirty fellow birdies Dirty Bird Podcast is brought
0: to you by me John and our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts Thanks everyone for being on the show I really appreciate it Our logo is made by TJ Renoski with inspiration from my beautiful fiance, Lauren. Love you, babe, even though you don't listen to the show. Our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, and our outro is by the Sidewalk Slammers. Find them wherever you get your music. Send listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at DirtyBirdPodcast. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Reddit. You name it, Dirty Bird's been there.
1: Today, my fault. I've been in bed on some horses at the track. Driving to Brooklyn, ain't never coming back. Tim's on the ground in the concrete jungle. I might get into a little rumble.